Welcome to the Show Me and Sue podcast. I'm Zach Lawhorn from Show Me Opportunity, and today I'm joined by James Scholes, David Stokes, and Elias Chapellis from the Show Me Institute. David, last week we had the midterm elections, and people were maybe tracking some Senate races, some House races. What were you paying attention to last week? Well, I, I remember The Onion after Obama won in 2008. The Onion's headline was like the next, was next week was like, Clapkey wins Topeka Ward Three election. It was like, all right, all right. It was sort of sort of funny at the the time. So I tend to focus on the smaller things. That's sort of my my specialty here. I may in my personal life root on the bigger issues, but the work life here is about some interesting things happening around around the state. And one of the one of the most intriguing was in the Robertson School was in the Robertson Fire District in Hazelwood and Bridgeton, which has just been for 20 years abusing, which is the nicest way I can say it, the city of Hazelwood due to a terrible state law dealing with how Hazelwood annexed portions of the Robertson Fire District many years ago and then compelling Hazelwood to agree to pay Robertson Fire District in property taxes, basically whatever Robertson Fire District wanted, which is a little more complex than that, obviously, but not much more. So they had just insane property taxes in Robertson Fire District being paid by all the people of Hazelwood, not just the homeowners who lived in that part of Hazelwood. So it was sort of a terrible scenario. And finally, people got sick of it enough that they recalled the fire district board members and replaced them with three reformers. So that's going to be a very interesting uh, thing out here because, you know, there's a lot of, as the Post-Dispatch has covered through the years, there's a lot of issues with fire districts in, um, in Missouri and just getting there getting sort of ardent union supporters in to run the districts and and uh, all the troubles that that can lead to. I'm a big fan of municipal fire departments, much less of independent fire districts in our state. Uh, similarly, as we talked on the podcast on the radio many times, there were two commercial property surtax cut proposals on the ballot, a large one in Laclede County in south-central Missouri and a much, much smaller one in Clay County, which is north Kansas City. And the one in Clay County passed, so very excited about that. The one in Laclede County went down, went down widely. It lost 60 to 40, even though Laclede County was certainly a very conservative voting county. Perhaps they asked for a little bit too much in Laclede County with this tax cut. Perhaps they didn't have sort of an organized effort in support of it, whereas in Clay County there were at least some elected officials who, in their own capacity, uh, as candidates were out strongly supporting it and talking in favor of it. Also, it was a much more modest cut, so perhaps that was more appealing to the people of uh, Clay County. Uh, I'd like them to try again in the next couple of years in Laclede County, perhaps with a, a smaller cut. And I'd like some of the other counties, if you go to showmeinstitute.org and Google County Surtax Map, there's a few other counties that really stand out with high commercial property tax sur- surtaxes, including Perry County is another one, where I, in southeast Missouri, where I'd love to see, get a groundswell going for people to see that and perhaps put that on the ballot to lower that. Follow the Clay County model, maybe a, a modest tax cut to, to lower that, to help, to help all businesses in your community and not just a special few through a, through a TIF or a TDD or a debatement or, or whatever. This is a much better strategy for economic growth. 
Sure. So two questions on the fire district. So one, you mentioned that uh, after the recall, reformers were elected. So there's still a lot of follow through that has to happen, correct? Or what what are your feelings about the people who replace these board members? Um, Are they going to be able to enact that reform? Are you optimistic? I am optimistic, but I certainly feel like they're they're the dog that caught the car. Like, all right, what do I what do I do now? Because <laughs> they're now the head of the fire district. So, so what they need to do late in the game, after abusing the city of Hazelwood for decades, last year, once this reform effort really got going, the fire district members dramatically cut the the fire district property tax. Too little, too late for the voters of the the area who saw through it as sort of a political game. So the newly elected reformers. The main thing they need to do, and the simplest thing, is just keep the much lower property tax rate. Just keep that and stop sticking it to the people of Hazelwood and just abusing the city. And this should, I mean, this is a big deal. The the city of Hazelwood was talking about having to declare bankruptcy because of the situation they were in. And with this this large property tax cut, presuming, as I'm highly confident, that it will go forward at the reduced level, at least the city of Hazelwood can can avoid bankruptcy talk now. So they need to move forward on on that. Then they just need to start running their fire district and hopefully operate a good quality fire district for the people of of Hazelwood and and Bridgeton. Uh, But then we can get into talks in Jefferson City in changing the legislation, changing the state statutes that make it so hard for a city to annex an area that's in a fire district. If a, if a city with a fire department annexes an area in a fire district, they should be able to provide fire services to that part of the city they've, they've annexed without this draconian property tax punishment. So that's where we need some changes to state law to, to address that. So you said that Hazelwood was uh, just one of the fire districts that has issues around the state. And I know you might not have this off the top of your head here, but um, is this a unique situation or is this how fire districts are kind of laid out across the state? And this might be a, I'll just say like a warning to other fire districts that need reform that, Hey, get it together. Or there could be a recall election. Well, this is a unique situation that it was so extreme. But what had, what had happened here where Hazelwood had signed this agreement many decades ago, and just to see the fire district then convince the, the home of the property owners in that part of Hazelwood to put the, the property tax rate through the roof because they weren't paying it. The whole city of Hazelwood was, was paying it. So it was a unique situation there. We've seen incredible situations like this. The, they changed the name recently, so I'm going to get the old name wrong, but there was, the, the, there was a fire district in, the, in, in sort of near North County, uh, near the area like St. Charles Rock Road, Natural Bridge, and Lucas and Hunt. There was a fire district covering that part. I think the Mid-County Fire District, but I, they've changed the name, and I may have, I probably have that wrong. But about a decade ago, they elected some new people to it who basically just viewed the fire district as a personal ATM for themselves. They, they fired a number of a longtime employees. They put, they put supporters in into various positions. They, the lawyer who was running the whole political operation started charging them through the roof so the lawyer was making a fortune on the dealings there he's since been disbarred i don't know if he was disbarred over those actions or other actions but that's sort of the the game that was going there so so there's been a number of problems with fire districts throughout the state of missouri especially in st louis and hopefully this robertson issue and these these changes here can lead to some some reforms. I would. I said many times that the worst part 
of the Better Together movement. And I supported aspects of the Better Together movement, and I disagreed with aspects of it. The worst part was the report they did on on fire services in St. Louis City and St. Louis County, where they basically worked with the fire union to write a proposal that would have resulted in spending a fortune on fires, far more than we need to spend to do the bidding of the, the firemen's union on, on that. So we need, again, more municipal fire departments where the elected officials have to take funding the fire department into the same consideration as the police and the streets and the parks and everything else as opposed to these independent fire districts for whom oftentimes run, not always, but oftentimes run by supporters of the fire union whose only game is to raise and spend as much money on, on fire services and salaries and benefits as they can. You know, it's it's not an issue that is sexy, that gets people riled up, that they say, I want to go vo- vote for my uh, fire board or whatever. You know, I don't even know what these things are called, uh, if I'm calling it correctly, a fire board. But, it, but I draw a parallel to a school board race, right? The school board races are almost always in off-cycle elections. And teachers' unions play an outsized role in getting people who support more spending, who are very um, cozy with the unions elected. And it seems like that's the very same thing that happens in, in the fire world. Is that right? Absolutely. Even even more extreme, perhaps, because while while you cannot be politically active as a fireman generally in your own fire district, there's nothing to say that another fireman who works in another district who's off on election day can't go to your polling place in your fire district and say vote for the following candidates they support public safety they support saving saving all what they really are looking for is people who want higher salary and benefits for the for the fire for the fire union for the firemen and we all think firemen should be paid a a quality wage for dangerous work nobody's out there thinking firemen shouldn't be well paid but the amount we spend on on fire services uh, compared to the amount of fires that we generally have is really is really out of whack like in suburban Missouri suburban America we spend a fortune on fire services for something that is you know many cities will have one one fire a year and I know that you're going to say well if it if that's one fire a year is your house don't you want the best and of course you do that's why everybody wants quality fire services but the firemen's union is just taking it crazy out of out of whack here what if you wanted for example so i could just upset everybody if you wanted to cut taxes and provide good services for the people of chesterfield chesterfield should create a municipal fire department there should be the chesterfield municipal fire department uh but they can't do that because the two fire districts that make up Chesterfield, they would have to pay them such enormous property taxes to make up the lost, the lost property taxes there. It's fiscally impossible. So, so you have this issue. Now, one of those fire districts in Chesterfield is, is the ground zero for people pushing back against the fire union and electing people to run that fire board that aren't in the pocket of the firemen's union. But that's an immense amount of work every other April for volunteers and, and local citizens to fight this fight. And that's not something that, that's successfully done in many parts of the state of Missouri. I just love that David Stokes knows so much about the fire protection districts. Where else are you going to get this kind of knowledge? <laughs> the answer is nowhere. It's right here. It's, it's it. He I can't fire me. <laughs> Pun intended. He's got it covered. Um, all right, so moving on, James, we're going to zoom out a little bit. Uh, so the midterms at the national level, one of the things we've heard – 
for the last couple of years is that there is this engaged voter block in its parents. And one of the issues that's going to mobilize them is education. And I think there's three big buckets. There's school choice. There's the uh, COVID learning loss, the restrictions. And then there's the curricula discussion. After last week, do we have any more information about if that was a mobilizing issue and what do we think moving forward? Are we still going to be hearing about now more than ever parents are going to come together and, and head to the polls? Well, I think it really depends on who you are and where you want to look. If you are an active school choice advocate, you could certainly find some evidence to support the case that there was a, a school choice wave. In fact, you, my friend Corey DeAngelis has a piece in the Wall Street Journal where he claims just this. There was this school choice wave that really changed and shaped the election. And what, what he says is he points to Ron DeSantis in Florida and his tremendous win there. He points to the fact that DeSantis uh, supported school board candidates and all of those school board candidates won. He points to the fact that many Democrats who have been opposed to school choice in the run up to the election opened up. Even J.B. Pritzker in, in Illinois came out a little bit in support of the voucher program there. So he points to this evidence of Democrats opening up to school choice. He points to the, these school board races. If you want to look into those sorts of things, you can probably find some evidence that maybe school choice mattered. But I think really, if you're, if you're looking at this objectively, you would say, mm, I'm not so sure. I mean, it's one of many issues that contributed to uh, the election. It's one of many issues that led to DeSantis winning such a decisive victory. It wasn't just school choice. And I liken this a little bit to Common Core from several years ago. So Common Core became this highly controversial uh, attempt to revise state standards. And many people thought it was something else, but that's essentially what it was. And we had such mobilization around Common Core that it was incredible. But the amount of those people or the number of those people that transitioned from opposing Common Core to supporting school choice, I would say was small. I mean, there were certainly some, but the numbers that the overlap, if you drew, you know, a Venn diagram, these overlapping circles, the number of people that supported uh, school choice and opposed Common Core, um, you know, I don't even think it was half. You know, it was not all those people jumped aboard the school choice ship. And I think the same thing is happening here when we think about the mask mandates, we think about critical race theory, we think about all these things that people are talking about on the right in terms of, of education. Not all those people are jumping onto the school choice bandwagon. And a lot of them, you know, we might elect a local uh, a school board candidate who's conservative. Well, they ran on a platform that was open the schools up, that was take the masks off, that was anti-CRT. They didn't run on, for the most part, they didn't run on platforms that were, hey, let's let our kids go to other school districts. <laughs> you know, that wasn't their, their platform. So even when we're electing conservative candidates in school board cases, they're not always necessarily pro-school choice people. So uh, here's what I do believe is happening. COVID and the way that the unions responded absolutely mobilized a, a portion of parents. We saw in Missouri in one year a drop in enrollment of about 20,000 public school students. And we see that in every state where enrollment is dropping. People are leaving. But that's like a pressure valve that allowed people to leave, and the vast majority of people are staying there in that system. But 
we see over time this slow march of expansion of school choice programs. In some places, we see that slow, slow march suddenly take a large leap forward. But if you look back over the last decade or even two decades in terms of school choice, it's a slow and steady march of expanding options for parents. And I think that's what we continue to see here. Now, for me, the real test of this election, people say there was a, if, if there was a school choice wave on this election, well, what's going to be the test of that? The test for me would be in this next legislative session or the one after, do we see a wave of legislation supporting school choice? And I don't think it's going to be a wave. I think it's going to be a continuation of that steady march towards expanding options for families. So when I look at this, did education play a factor? Yes, it played a factor on the margins. It wasn't as important as the economy or on the left, it wasn't as important as abortion was. Um, but it was a factor to some extent. One more item before we move on, James. So uh, last week, um, some KIPP schools and St. Louis charter schools voted to unionize. What, what do you think? Is that uh, a trend? Has that been going on? Do you see that continuing? It makes me nervous. That's what, that's what I'll say about it. And here's why it makes me nervous. The trend we've seen in education with, with a lot of these charter schools, uh, not just charter schools, but say Teach for America, because a lot of them are getting captured by the left. They're getting captured by the unions. So Teach for America, from its inception, was very much at odds with teachers' unions. I mean, it, it was a reform organization run by liberals, mostly. And a lot of people that went into the program were oftentimes on the left. And what has happened over time is Teach for America is becoming more and more captured by the unions, where it's, it's no longer a reforming organization, but it's playing with those organizations. And that's what I'm worried about with KIPP, too. KIPP and, and charter schools um, were not supposed to be the same thing as what we already have. They're supposed to be something different. And so KIPP comes in with this new program. The, the KIPP stands for Knowledge is Power Program. And it's supposed to be a, a back-to-the-basics school where we, we go longer days, we work harder, we, we, you know, kids go to school longer. And now the teachers are unionizing. And what's going to happen to the policies at KIPP? Will KIPP be able to remain KIPP with the educational philosophy and the mission that they have when they're being, uh, when they have to negotiate with the union that is, you know, negotiating with the district. How, how can KIPP remain its own identity, you know, its own thing? And that's what I worry about in terms of education is that some of these um, organizations can be co-opted by the unions and not serve the interests that we want them to serve. All right. Yeah, definitely something interesting to watch, a trend. Um, Elias, so we've talked about saving fire districts. James uh, talked about saving education. You have a project that went online last week, and there's a uh, web component coming very soon, uh, about saving federalism. So let's just start, set the table. What's the idea behind the project? So the idea behind saving federalism is just sort of looking at essentially the growth of state government, uh, specifically Missouri. And over the past decade, we've essentially seen uh, the recession of 2008, um, the Affordable Care Act of 2010, 2014, essentially. And then with uh, COVID, there's just an enormous expansion of the federal government. And with that, uh, the size of state budgets. So Missouri's budget over the past decade has almost doubled. 
And the biggest driver of that is essentially federal funds. And whenever the federal government uh, institutes some policy, um, what that means for the state of Missouri is that there's less, um, you know, state flexibility in terms of where state tax dollars are going, um, you know, and then when you have this situation where the state has less flexibility for where things are um, being spent, you essentially have Missouri going further and further down this path of what um, people in Washington, D.C. want and not what people in Missouri want and what that means going forward if we can't reverse this troubling trend. So, yeah, you mentioned growth. And to me, a state's budget growing and its reliance on federal program, it would make more sense if that state was growing in population, if they were expanding, if they're but that's not the case in Missouri, right? Sure. Missouri's budget is growing much faster than the population. It's growing faster than inflation. It's growing faster than, you know, all these different things. And so what what you see essentially with Missouri is that um, when the federal government offers some money, they normally offer money, say, so this project starts, my project starts in roughly 2011. And so we're kind of at the end of the 2008 recession. And Missouri's revenues were down. You know, it was a tough time economically. And the federal government offers money. Well, what happens is Missouri needs that money at that time because there's not uh, state revenues coming in. And the idea would be once the state recovers, um, the federal government could take that money back. You know, the state doesn't need it anymore. And Missouri can get back on its own two feet. Well, what has happened is Missouri's growth has lagged. The federal government has kept some of the strings from the previous programs. And then you add the Affordable Care Act and covid and essentially, Missouri now has tons of programs that um, still have these federal strings, federal money that um, you know Missouri used to provide on its own. Or if Missouri wanted to get it rid of these programs, one of the things the federal government does is they have these things called maintenance of effort requirements. And so uh, it's basically an agreement the state makes when they accept some money. So you say, okay, well, we need money today. Um, I'll abide by these rules. Okay, well, what happens is Missouri agrees to those when it makes sense financially. Things economically aren't looking very well. And then when things are looking better, uh, those those rules stay in place. And so now um, one example I have in uh, my paper is essentially this program called the Supplemental Nursing Program, where it's a $25 million program, which provides some aid to um, people in nursing homes, um, not saying anything about the merits of the program. But essentially, the federal government says if Missouri doesn't continue this program, $25 million, uh, they will get rid of all of the state's Medicaid funding. So that's over $7 billion per year in Medicaid funding that the state could risk losing if they don't keep this one program that had some purpose, you know, 30, 40 years ago whenever it was implemented. And I'm not saying the state should necessarily get rid of it, but when you have hundreds and hundreds of these things across the state government with all these different uh, restrictions from the federal government, at some point, someone has to go in and say, hey, you know, we have to get some sort of flexibility here, or what are we even doing? What are the priorities in Missouri right now? Are we trying to implement, are we trying to use these precious tax dollars, you know, towards better roads, better schools, um, better health care? Or are we just doing what, you know, elected officials in Washington, D.C. wanted in the 1970s? So there's a lot in the report, and people should definitely go check it out. But we're a a few weeks, maybe a month from pre-filing. If I'm a policymaker, legislator listening to this, what is one of the first steps? Just a basic, let's get started talking about this. What would you like to see in December pre-filed or in the 
the next legislative session to start to address this problem? Sure. The first thing that could always uh, that I think always should happen is, you know, the state taking a much more, um, you know, stronger stance on uh, some of this data quality and diving into really this accountability. Um, the budget every year is a very important process, but it it was a very uh, painstaking process to go try to figure out where all this federal money was coming in. And I really think um, our legislators need to just start from square one looking at looking at all these federal programs um, and figuring out, are they working? Do we need better data to see if they're working? What is the bureaucracy here? Is it a situation where you know, there are employees across different departments that really could be consolidated to be, you know, handling these grants, stuff like that. And then once there's a better handle of what the situation is, I think it's time for the state of Missouri to start looking at these things and saying no to the federal government dollars. You know, finding the places, um, you know, not mandatory programs, because there certainly are a lot of mandatory things that the federal government requires. But there are areas that we talk about in Medicaid all the time of, you know, block grants, you know, greater flexibility, stuff like that. And just really taking a stand against some of this uh, government growth because there's still going to be COVID funds this year. There's still going to be the, um, these billions of dollars in education, Medicaid, all across the board. And as those funds start drying up, as they're going to towards the end of this year, uh, it's really important that the legislature is ready to be sure that these programs don't stay. If they if they were only needed temporarily, they should not become permanent. Po- they should not become permanent programs. And I think that uh, getting a handle on the data is probably the first step. All right, saving federalism up at showmeinstitute.org. Everyone should go check it out. All right, finally, um, David, what are you going to be keeping tabs on over the next week? Really interesting issue. Uh, we'd love to talk about it. Uh, more on on our next podcast, but the city of St. Louis is proposing a pilot program towards a guaranteed income program that some other cities around the country have have established. Just basically, outside of all other welfare programs, of which there are many, this is just sending people money, no strings attached. And Dave Nicklaus with the Post-Dispatch has a column on it where he, he makes two points. He says, it's a noble goal, but the city probably can't, might not be able to afford it. And I'm a huge Dave Nicklaus fan, and he's been he's been very supportive of some of our work at Show Me Institute. But on this one, he's half right. He's right in that the city of St. Louis might not be able to afford it. He's wrong in that it is not a noble goal. It is not a noble goal to dramatically increase dependency and to further put more people on an expanded welfare system. And then owing the politicians who who have started this program of just sending people money, uh, as the Simpsons said, sending people money for doing absolutely nothing. And I think it's a, a bad idea, and I look forward to following it more and talking more about it here. Great. James, what are you going to be watching? So the next week, I have no idea. Mostly going to hockey practice with my kids and those sorts of things. But from a policy perspective, I guess I'm looking further out. I'm really interested in the pre-filings that we'll see in December. I'm interested to see what the lawmakers are actually going to try to do when it comes to education. You, t- you mentioned before the achievement gap or the, the the learning loss that occurred because of COVID. We're not going to make that up by continuing to do the same things. You know, Susan Susan Pendergrass has flouted this idea for a while of, of giving families a, a tutoring voucher of some sort. Uh, give them a $500 voucher 
so that they can pay for uh, Kumon math or, or they can hire their own teacher to do some reading tutoring after school. I think it's those types of programs that might actually have the potential to close some, some of the learning loss gaps that we saw because of COVID. So it'll be interesting to see if anything like that gets proposed. I also think that's a good starter to open the door for broader school choice in Missouri. If people get a little taste of that and say, hey, I like this sort of thing. Uh, maybe we should do this at, the, at a bigger level and let me choose my kid's school as well. So I think it could open further doors. But I'm interested to see what gets pre-filed. Elias? Well, personally and professionally, I am worried about the uh, personal property taxes. Uh, I think a lot of Missourians probably got their bills uh, recently. I know I did. I uh, actually received two, one for St. Louis City and one for St. Louis County, which I'm pretty sure is a mistake. And so I've got to go uh, figure that out. But I think uh, as Missourians are receiving these bills, they will be uh, realizing that with the uh, growing uh, cost of used cars and their assessed valuation there, their um, taxes are going to be going up. And they're going to be, at least I am, very upset about that. And I think that um, you know, this situation we had over COVID where, you know, the um, there was that reduced supply of cars and the valuations went up. Um, I think we're now looking at a situation where these local governments across Missouri are going to be getting a windfall of higher tax uh, revenues based off of, you know, this period. And so I think um, there's a lot of ideas that David has floated one of, you know, rolling back some of the uh, property tax rates like you do with um, – you know, homes if the valuations increase. And so I think over the next few weeks, we're going to be seeing people uh, people finally uh, voicing their frustrations on this issue. And to Elias's question, you owe your personal property taxes based on where you lived on January 1st of 2022. So you don't owe, you don't owe both to the city and the, the county unless you had two apartments and had cars registered at different addresses, which I don't think you did. No, no. But listeners of talk radio in the state of Missouri will be familiar with David Stokes in this topic over the last few weeks, you've been sort of the like Paul Revere of uh, personal property taxes the last couple months. You you tried to warn us. The property taxes are coming. The right. property taxes are coming. <laughs> and here I've, it is. I've done some excellent blacksmith work, some small statues in my uh, home office where it's really neat stuff. All right. As always, thank you for listening. Plenty more at showmeinstitute.org. For our St. Louis listeners, we have an event on Thursday, December 1st coming up. We have Tony Woodleaf. He'll be talking about the red versus blue myth. Plenty of more information at showmeinstitute.org slash events, and you can purchase tickets there. Elias, James, David, thank you very much.